You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll learn about immigration defense in San Francisco and how people are transferred from prisons to immigration detention. ICE uses the language of criminality to target people and to use a rhetoric to win people over to support deportation. So the vast majority of people in this country, in my opinion, do not want federal agents coming into our neighborhoods, coming into our institutions and swiping people away and taking them away from their family. That causes devastation and trauma. Um, So the only way to win public support for this is to use the language of criminality to label immigrants criminals. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. In California, a sanctuary state where law enforcement is barred from collaborating with immigration enforcement, People who have completed prison sentences have been handed off to immigration detention. The Guardian U.S. has reported on two such cases recently, both of which involved people who had fought wildfires while incarcerated. San Francisco's Office of the Public Defender has a unit dedicated to defending immigrants in court, where in most states they often have no representation. I talked with the managing attorney of this unit to better understand how handoffs between agencies work and what exactly happens to someone who's arrested by immigration enforcement in San Francisco, as well as the class action suit the unit helped litigate over COVID outbreaks in detention facilities. My name is Francisco Ugarte. I'm the manager of the Immigration Defense Unit at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, and we have a staff of uh, 13 people that to deportation defense in the San Francisco Immigration Court. We also provide representation and advice for non-citizen clients pursuant to our obligations under state and federal law to ensure that people get accurate advice about um, their criminal charges and whether plea bargaining to a charge will lead to their deportation. I do want to talk about the work that you do at a little bit more length. But the reason why I wanted to talk to you is because of something that has now popped up in the news twice. Um, The second case that The Guardian has reported on of an incarcerated firefighter in California who was handed off to immigration enforcement after completing his prison sentence. So The Guardian reports that some 500 people have been transferred from prison to ICE detention this year. And people might know California as a sanctuary state where law enforcement is not supposed to be actively collaborating with immigration enforcement. So how does this happen, this transfer of going from prison to being handed off to ICE? This this has always happened in California, particularly in the recent history of the last 10, 15 years with the proliferation of funding to immigration customs enforcement. Immigration customs enforcement is the federal agency responsible for administering uh, immigration laws, well, actually administering, you know, uh, deporting people. Mm-hmm. Um, and under that branch, they have what is called the Criminal Alien Program. And under that program, they have many, many agents who investigate individuals that are incarcerated and seek to uh, remove them from the country. These are people 
oftentimes lawful permanent residents who've lived here with lawful immigration status for many, many years, have families, have children, um, and may have committed an error, sometimes serious, sometimes minor, but because uh, Congress changed immigration laws in, in the 90s, making many, many offenses trigger deportation, even for people who have been here, who have lawful permanent resident status, those individuals will be considered deportable by the agency subject to deportation. And so with this mini department within ICE, um, they investigate, they look into who's incarcerated, they try and interview people, and then they work with the prison system to identify, locate, and then um, take into custody uh, people when they've completed their sentence. So you would imagine that we do, you know, we have a sanctuary state, we have a sanctuary city, but lo and behold, our state prison system actively cooperates with immigration authorities. They give them access to prisons, access to people in custody. They regularly communicate with immigration enforcement officers. They let them know when people are being released from custody, and then they hand them over to immigration agents upon their release without any regard to one's behavior in prison, you know, who they are, whether they have family here. It is a outrage and a human rights crisis of the highest order. Um, that that we've be we've that has become normalized. So I mean I think that it's clear what your perspective is on this. So I don't want to ask you to sure. defend a position that you can't defend. But is there a rationale from the federal government for targeting people who have already completed their prison sentences? I mean the term criminal alien makes it sound like you know they're trying to remove people who might be a threat to society. But these people specifically are either already in prison, therefore arguably not a, pres- a threat to society, or have completed a sentence and they might have you know, reformed significantly. They might really regret what they've done. They might be ready to re-enter society. And those are the ones who are being removed? Yeah, uh, most people have been deemed not to be a threat after going through a parole board hearing where people, and these are not exactly, you know, uh, people who are used to just letting people go. Um, the the right. parole board has very strict people on its board, and they find, yes, they're they're ready to, to come back into society or they've completed their sentence. The ICE uses the language of criminality to target people and to use a rhetoric to win people over to support deportation. So the vast majority of people in this country, in my opinion, do not want federal agents coming into our neighborhoods, coming into our institutions and swiping people away and taking them away from their family. That causes devastation and trauma. Uh, So the only way to win public support for this is to use the language of criminality to label immigrants criminals. And so this concept criminal alien program is designed, you know, they say, well, we're going to make our community safer. But if you look at the facts, um, study after study has proven that there is no correlation between deportation and public safety. There is no correlation between increased deportation and crime rates. In fact, if you look at localities, states, um, or other jurisdictions that have completely divested themselves from immigration enforcement, including San Francisco, crime rates actually go down. Um, in San Francisco in 2013, um, we, we created the due process for all ordinance. And for the first time in this city, we decided we are not going to cooperate at all 
with ICE. Nobody has been transferred from our jails to ICE since 2013. What happened to the crime rate? Violent crime rate actually went down, just like virtually every other uh, urban area um, in California that adopted a sanctuary policy. So there's unfortunately this concept that's very simple to say, deport the criminals, get the felons out, that will make us safer. That has no factual basis whatsoever. That's because deportation is never is not about criminality. Deportation is a system that says you don't deserve to be here because you weren't born here. So we're going to let we're going to get you out. But if you look at immigrants, you know, San Francisco over the last 100 120 years, um, our city has had about a third anywhere between a 30 to 40% um, population of people who have born from another country. Um, statistics show that immigrants actually commit crimes less than U.S. citizens at a less, uh, at a lower rate. You know, whatever that stat means. Deportation doesn't help us. It doesn't make us safer. Um, it actually makes us makes our communities suffer. It traumatizes our communities. It takes um, parents away from their children. Um, it takes you know breadwinners away from our economy. Um, and it separates people based on their birth status and uh, then creates this massive infrastructure uh, of incarceration um, and puts people in jail for the act of trying to come to the United States to seek a better life. Um, you so let's talk about that language of, of criminality a little bit more, because in criminal court, people have the right to a lawyer, whereas in immigration court, most places, they don't. And you run this program that, as I understand it, is somewhat out of the ordinary for major, major cities to have because the public defender's office here has the unit, the immigration defense unit. Can you talk about how big a difference representation makes in immigration cases? Yes. So you're right. There's no right to appointed counsel in immigration proceedings. So you can be in jail, um, facing deportation um, over video in an immigration court and you say, I don't have a lawyer. Can you help me? And the judge says, I'm sorry, you're not. We nope. can't appoint you a lawyer. Yeah. So imagine that someone going before a judge and saying, I'd like to apply for asylum. And then the judge says, here, here's an asylum application. Fill it out. To file a competent asylum application, you have to know the latest Board of Immigration Appeals decisions. You know, if you've been harmed in your home country, you have to figure out, well, if I was harmed, is there a nexus between that harm and my membership in a in a social group or my political opinion or my gender? And you have to craft that claim in a way to style it within the law. Now, imagine doing that and not being a lawyer. Um, it's virtually impossible to do. And then if you have a um, skilled, seasoned government lawyer that's always defending the government, that will always be there to challenge you know, a legal claim, um, your chances are nil. And that's why if you look at the San Francisco Immigration Court for detained cases, uh, many judges have detained asylum denial rates of more than 90%. In fact, one judge was around 95% of people who applied for asylum wow. lost. Now, if you look across the board nationally, immigrants with attorneys have about a five-time uh, greater chance of winning their case than if they weren't um, represented. But the stats get better if you look at people that were have been released from custody. 
Oftentimes when you're detained in immigration court, the key battle is to get out of custody because when you're detained, the carrot of deportation is always there. If you accept deportation, you will get out of jail. You're not detained anymore. Exactly. And, and cases can go on for a long time. So people are... People so an attorney... Hope. Exactly. So an attorney can help that person get out of custody by filing a bail motion, by ha- filing a federal petition, by maneuvering things in ways that a person without a lawyer can't. I mean, it's pretty obvious thing. If, you, if you're, you know, <laughs> accused of a crime in criminal court and you don't have a lawyer, you're not in a good situation, right? right. <laughs> I mean, it's a real stain on, on this country's, you know, civic institutions. Hidden beneath, you know, our government are hundreds of thousands of people that are being forcibly removed by a paramilitary force from the country without ever talking to a lawyer, without mm-hmm. in a legal proceeding. And it's something that we, we really need to change. And hopefully our new administration, there will be a demand that this gross human rights violation um, doesn't continue to happen. I'm speaking with Francisco Ugarte, managing attorney for the Immigration Defense Unit at the Office of the San Francisco Public Defender. Looking into how things work in San Francisco a little bit more, it's interesting to hear you say that no nobody has been transferred to um, immigration custody from, from San Francisco's jail since, I think you said, 2013. We don't, as far as I know, have any immigration detention facilities in San Francisco, do we? No, no, we don't. Um, so there... where is someone who's taken by ICE taken to? It's a good question. Immigration detention is a federally run Kind of system. And for people in Northern California, there used to be four immigration detention centers, one in Richmond, one outside Sacramento, one in Yuba County, and one is Bakersfield. Uh, the Bakersfield mm-hmm. uh, Detention Center is a privately run for-profit institution called Mesa Verde. So there was political upheaval in Richmond, California, and so they got rid of their contract. The same thing happened in Sacramento. So the Elk Grove uh, RCCC, which used to have an immigration contract, stopped detaining immigrants. Santa Clara also used to detain immigrants for immigration custody, and they stopped doing it. Um, Yuba still has this contract, and then Mesa Verde is still um, holding immigrants. And there, uh, you know, Geo and the private prison industrial complex got together and figured out how to avoid, you know, the California law that that stopped the proliferation. Uh, increasing um, new private prisons. And they they were able to get a contract, you know, in secret in McFarland. So there are now two new immigration detention centers in um, outside of Bakersfield. So if you're arrested in, in San Francisco right now, and you're going to be detained, you're probably going to be shipped to Bakersfield, someplace in Southern California, maybe even Colorado, or perhaps some other place in the country, but usually it's going to be uh, Bakersfield or Adelanto in California. So how does that happen? How can we let that happen? It's, it's How do you get to them? I mean, if, if you're representing people who are being shipped off to Bakersfield or even farther away, I mean, how do you represent them? Well, thanks to the ACLU and uh, other you know, organizations that have demanded more access. Um, people who are detained at Mesa Verde do have the right to call a lawyer for free. And people at Mesa Verde used, um, would have their removal hearings in San Francisco, albeit over video. So our program, what we, used, what we did pre-COVID, 
is we would show up during master calendar hearings at the immigration court in San Francisco, uh, meet our clients for the first time over video. We'd say, hey, do you want a lawyer? They'd say yes, <laughs> as you can imagine, um, mm -hmm. if they didn't already have a, a lawyer. And then we would meet with them over video and then start talking to them over the phone. And every now and then we would visit down in Mesa Verde. Um, our program was quite successful. Um, we've represented about 300 people in detention since we launched in 2017. The immigration court decided that it would no longer hear Mesa Verde cases from Bakersfield in San Francisco. So right now, and they created a new court in Los Angeles where those individual cases are being heard. So Yuba County is still being... Sorry, excuse me, sorry. why? Yeah. Well, we don't know the reason why. Wow. Um, they, they've publicly said, I mean, they've, they've given very few reasons why. If you ask anybody who knows anything about Bay Area representation and, and immigration detention, they will tell you it's because to avoid a vast network of very, very talented lawyers that are very effective at stopping deportations. Uh, that's what I think, but we can't get into their heads. I mean, if, right. but if you look at the way the Trump administration has has used immigration courts, you know, in the last four years, they have weaponized immigration courts to create a conveyor belt of deportation. They've hired um, judges who have very little experience in immigration law, but who are very, very strict in applying immigration laws. They hire very, very few people from the defense bar as immigration judges. Um, they've used court location as a weapon to get people away from you know, places with a large number of lawyers and, and legal service organizations. So it's this weird situation where in immigration court, there's a the Board of Immigration Appeals adjudicates cases and interprets the laws and determines whether immigration judges' decisions are following the law. And the Attorney General of the United States um, has authority to write a published decision that will control all immigration courts um, on his own or her own and issue and then completely change the law. And under the Trump administration, this has happened more often than any other administration. And it almost seems like every week the attorney general writes a new published opinion that eviscerates fundamental legal protections. Switch, switching the burden of proof from the government to uh, immigrants on issues, making it really, really hard to prove an asylum claim if, say, you're a victim of domestic violence, a survivor of domestic violence. Over and over again, we see it. And, and it's, it makes, to be perfectly honest as an immigration lawyer, and I know if there are other immigration lawyers listening to this, it's, it kind of makes a mockery of your practice. You, you really mm -hmm. wonder... You know, with the skills you, you learned in law school, the basic fundamental rules of, of procedure, you know, calling witnesses or just knowing what the law is, it just kind of makes a mockery of it. And you go in uh, with your hands tied behind your back and you never know, well, is the law going to change tomorrow? Who knows? Mm. Um, wow. But at the same time, with all that said, I got to say, you know, many people predicted you know, with the Trump administration, there'd be mass deportation, there'd be raids every day, um, you know, things would be really bad. But California resisted very, very effectively 
uh, against the Trump administration. We, we passed sanctuary laws throughout the state. We built up legal service providers to you know, challenge deportations. And, and if you can believe it, we've actually, there are far fewer people deported from California under the uh, Trump administration than under the Obama administration. Um, and I think that's, that's not because of the Trump administration. It is because many people came together, not just lawyers, but immigrants themselves, nonprofit organizations, um, concerned community members, faith, faith groups, really resisted this kind of mass deportation program. And um, we, we came out of it pretty, pretty well in, in light of everything. And yet we have the situation that's prompted this conversation today where California still has a practice of handing over people who have completed their prison terms to ICE for deportation. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so I interrupted right. you, actually. <laughs> I interrupted you earlier uh, to ask about why this immigration court was moved when you were talking about how the Immigration Defense Unit at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office uh, is able to defend people. So now, now I'm even more confused. How do you manage to do this? when the court isn't even here anymore, even virtually. So the, there is still a detained court in San Francisco, and okay. the court is still adjudicating cases out from Yuba County. Uh, many people who are detained have their cases being adjudicated at various stages of appeal. So at, you know, if they lose at the immigration judge level, they get to appeal to the Board of Immigration Appeals, and then they'll, they'll have their cases done at the Ninth Circuit. But right now, what we have focused on this year is helping people get out of immigration detention because of the COVID crisis. I was going to say, um, you've had horrible outbreaks in ICE detention. That's right. That's right. And our office is co-counseling with the ACLU of Northern California and Southern California, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, Cooley and Lakin and Wild, private law firm with some amazing lawyers. And we filed a class action suit um, against ICE because of the way that they were handling the COVID epidemic. The judge in that case ordered that a bail process um, for individuals who are in custody to seek release from custody as long as they were under a condition of supervision, and if they could prove that they weren't a danger to the community. And our office, the public defender's office, put together maybe about 150, 200 bail applications just our office alone, I think our entire, we, we filed a total of 230 bail applications and uh, many, many people have been released. And so in March, the population at Mesa Verde was about 355 out of a capacity of 400. And today there are only about 51 people today. And that was a result of the, the work that we, we've done together. We've been focusing on getting people out of jail. It's actually been one of the most rewarding times in my career. Um, to see a detention center essentially depopulate. Mm. Um, and it's been a really beautiful thing. So although, you know, there are many people still inside, but that's what we've been doing this year. So who knows what the next administration will bring if they try and, you know, move detained facilities out, detained courts out of San Francisco. You know, it puts us in a somewhat odd position because, of course, our goal is to organize ourselves out of a job. We don't want to have to do this. We don't, we don't, we oppose immigration detention generally. We're so successful to get them out of our community. That's great. But people are still being detained. Uh, people still being arrested by ICE in the field. ICE can still go to people's homes, even though we have a sanctuary ordinance. We have to see ourselves as a flexible unit. 
and that if ICE is kidnapping people and bringing them to other parts of the country or other parts of the state, we 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 are there. You know, we're a public defender. We're representing people who are uh, taken into custody by immigration, and we, we'll we'll figure out a way to defend them. What happens to people who are released from immigration detention? I mean, as you say, if a facility is depopulated, I mean, if these are people who have been plucked out of their lives in San Francisco or wherever, other parts of California, and then shipped off to these detention centers scattered across the state, I imagine it's not terribly easy to just be plopped back in? Do they even get a ride home? That's a really good question. We, you know, when, whenever we file a bail application, whether it's with the immigration court or a federal court, um, we have to show that there's a release plan. So we have to show how they will be transported from the detention facility to uh, their residence, where they're going to live. And uh, many people may not have uh, work authorization. So we mm-hmm. work to ensure that they have a, a means of obtaining work authorization or some stable source of income. And so it, it's tough, but I have been amazed and impressed with people and their resilience and their ability to, to keep keep on. And thankfully, there's also a real strong network of faith-based organizations and community organizations have come together to help people who have been released. So I'll give you one example. I represent someone named Charles Joseph who was incarcerated for 12 years for armed robbery um, at the age of 22. And in prison, he completely transformed his life. He's an amazingly talented musician. I met his music instructor who volunteered her time at the, at the High Desert State Prison. Her name is Lacey Dalton. She's a country music hall of famer. And um, she who volunteers at a prison, and he, he really changed her life. He changed a lot of people's lives. And, you know, through a federal lawsuit, he was released from custody. Um, and so he's under, unfortunately under a house arrest right now, but he has participated in a whole a slew of advocacy struggles. He's, he's a leader in the fight to stop prison transfers to ICE. He's gone on Zoom calls. He was uh, with students at Berkeley High. He's been you know, he actually did a training for our office on what it's like to be detained in immigration custody. So, you know, people are plugging back in. Um, that's a long answer to your question, but uh, <laughs> um, it's, a, you know, it's, it's tough. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, I want to um, give you a chance to look ahead a bit. I know you say it's hard to predict how these things could change under a new administration, but we do now have a new uh, incoming administration what do you expect might happen um, on the immigration policy front that where the effects could be felt in San Francisco? I think a lot of us are hopeful. And a lot of us are hopeful because really unlike any other time in history, it's it really seems like a movement, an anti-immigration detention movement, a movement that was grounded in abolishing the, this administration really took a lot of steps to to launch um, him to victory. One of the first things that we're going to see is to undo a lot of the draconian, horrific policies that the Trump administration did, like, for example, you know, family separation or, or preventing asylum seekers from coming into the country and having them, you know, remain in, the, in Mexico while their mm-hmm. asylum 
applications are adjudicated. I think a serious question, we're going to see whether private prisons are going to continue, private immigration detention centers. I think there's going to be serious consideration for federal funding for deportation defense, you know, because states and localities have done a lot to kind of increase capacity to provide services. But really, it's the role of the federal government. So I think we'll see some of that. And simply undoing a lot of what the Trump administration did will help hundreds of thousands of people, particularly there, you know, there's still a backlog of about 400,000 cases in immigration court. And so just changing some of those basic rules, like, for example, administrative closure, that's a device in immigration court that is used to um, kind of close a case for a certain amount of time so that person can then apply for a visa. Trump administration said, you can't do that anymore. You can't close a case anymore. And just little things like that can be huge to um, impact, you know, our work. I think the harder thing will be, you know, divesting the immigration system from the criminal justice system, um, disentangling those two things. Um, but, but I think I think there's going to be a lot of options and a lot of hope for our movement. Francisco, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. That was Francisco Ugarte, Managing Attorney for the Immigration Defense Unit at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.